Quantspeak, expert insights from quants for quants. Welcome to Quantspeak, a new podcast from the CQF Institute at Fitch Learning. Hi, I'm Dan Tudball, editor of Wilmot Magazine, and this is Quantspeak. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. But if Horatio was a quant, he might ask, do I in fact have a philosophy, let alone one developed enough to allow for reverie? Our guest today has grappled with the place of philosophical thinking in the context of quant finance for over two decades. Ellie Ayash has challenged us with books such as The Blank Swan, The End of Probability, and The Medium of Contingency, An Inverse View of the Market along with numerous articles on philosophy and contingent claims. In what some might point to as an example of praxis, Ellie is a co-founder of ETO33, a financial software company that has been in business since 1999. Today, ETO33 is a leading specialist in the pricing of convertible bonds, in the equity to credit problem, and more generally in the calibration and recalibration of volatility surfaces. Welcome, Ellie. Hello, Dan. Thank you for having me and for hosting this talk or this conversation. <laughs> Not at all. Well, the thing that prompts us to have this conversation is the, the talk that you're giving for the CQF Institute, and we'll get into that a little bit later on. Today, I really wanted to focus on philosophy, on philosophy in relation to finance. I think it's going to be really interesting for me to see where you find the intersections and where that impetus came for you initially as well. Biographically, you were trained as an engineer. You pursued a career as an option market maker, first at Matif and then at Life. And then your bio says, then you turned to the philosophy of probability. Within those few sentences, there's a, a long journey. A long and dense, yes. <laughs> so, a long and dense journey. So, I think the place to start really would be temperamentally. Where did you begin? Temperamentally, was it finance? Was it engineering or was it philosophy? Well, it depends how, how early in my life or even childhood you, you, you want to start the process. Let's say at the point that you went to L'Ecole Polytechnique. Yeah, it's a, that's a good starting point because it's true that um, at L'Ecole Polytechnique, uh, we learned physics and finance was not on the on the curriculum. I mean, you you, you learned uh, courses in stochastic calculus and stochastic processes, but not nothing applied to finance as such. And there was no uh, teaching of Black-Scholes and the like. However, at Ecole Polytechnique, uh, what I found most amazing was learning uh, quantum mechanics. Uh, so that's the thing that, uh, and we had a, a very good teacher who, who made us understand um, uh, the uh, what was most difficult in, in quantum mechanics. So I learned that and I liked that theory a lot. And I did not like uh, stochastic processes and, you know, uh, the, these kind of more classical probability uh, courses. Why were you indisposed to those, do you think? 
probably I did not like the notation very much, you know, measure theory and all that, even, even though today I find it fascinating because I find that it's there that, that thinking uh, meets its limit, really. Uh, when really you, you think hard about the foundation of probability theory, measure theory, and all the, the very fine theorems about uh, the infinity theorems, uh, as we call them, about even uh, sets of measure zero, zero and all that. Now I find it amazing because it's a very subtle reasoning. And it's not that you are splitting hairs, but you are really getting things that exceptionally uh, make differences. And of course, the French school of thought in probability was major. Uh, key in that area. However, in those days when I was at Ecole Polytechnique, uh, I mean, the paradoxes of quantum mechanics and also the fact that quantum mechanics was having more to do with uh, matrix algebra. I like linear algebra uh, much better than uh, stochastic uh, calculus and stochastic uh, process at that time. But in any case, it's the quantum mechanics, which will take me later into a philosophy of physics, because uh, after I graduated from Ecole Polytechnique, uh, for and other reasons, I went immediately uh, to, to the floor of Matif in 87, and I was very fortunate or unfortunate, well, I don't know how we want to see things. I had been hired for one month, uh, first in that bank in Paris, but my first actual uh, day uh, as an employee uh, was the 19th of October 87, they sent me on the floor and it was Black Monday, as you all know. So that was the major um, uh, shock that I received in, in literally the first day of my career. Uh, and literally there, uh, when I stood by the pits and uh, uh, everything was crazy, and I promised you then that I will send you notes that I took that day. I still have a notebook where I report uh, minute by minute uh, the futures prices as they went down to uh, uh, 10 points down limit downs and impressions uh, that are philosophical impressions about what the hell is going on. So obviously, uh, that was a major failure of anything that you could have studied in theory, anything having to do with continuous stochastic processes, because it was a succession, succession of limit downs. So that event at the very start of my career had me start thinking about, you know, uh, the market from uh, trying to understand what was happening. And later that would, would combine with what I had learned uh, in quantum mechanics, and that after uh, spending four years on the pits uh, in Paris and then uh, five more years in London, at some point in London in 94, uh, so seven years after starting my career, uh, enrolled in a, a philosophy program at La Sorbonne on the philosophy of quantum mechanics. I took a course, even though I was living in London and was trading on life as an option trader, I remotely kind of pursued a course with a, like a DOR, we call it Diplôme d'études approfondies, on the philosophy of quantum mechanics with a major thinker of the philosophy of physics who will accompany me throughout my career, but I, I, I will keep in touch with him. His name is Michel Bitbol, uh, who writes uh, books uh, in French and in English, a very deep thinker and a very thorough uh, thinker in philosophy, in all ranges of, of philosophy. So as I was an engineer and he knew that I graduated from Ecole Polytechnique, he obviously wanted me to, to study philosophy of science rather than Heidegger and, and the like, of course. As I was based in London, um, I would buy books written in English. I started really reading what we call analytical philosophy, meaning, you know, the philosophy of logic, the philosophy of mathematics, uh, and the philosophy of science, and books uh, who try to understand what the hell is going on in quantum mechanics, and how is quantum mechanics exceeding the probabilistic paradigm? 
So the question is, uh, very simply, how is the statistics, which are real, because we we'll get them from real ex experiments, how are the statistics that we get in quantum mechanics, how can they possibly not fit in a Kolmogorovian, if you will, framework? So the answer, we know that actually the, the, the framework in which you have to do probabilistic calculus in quantum mechanics is not the, the probability spaces of Kolmogorov, but you have to generalize to a situation where you have incompatible algebras of event. So we will speak about ortho algebra and the like. And the, the, the basic fundamental and interesting philosophical idea here is to say that any object uh, that we study and an object you can define very abstractly by saying it is something that is more or less invariant and you are simply going to study it by, you know, by making it appear uh, from different faces. If you look at an object, what defines an object is that no matter if you looked at it from behind or from above, even though the, the image is different, somehow you know that there is a single object uh, behind the appearances and behind the images, and that's how you constitute objectivity. However, the lesson from quantum mechanics is that this is not general enough. If you want to be the most general that you can be about you know, studying phenomena, there are cases where the object itself depends on the context of manifestation of the object. So it's not independent. It's not that there is an object that is, exists somewhere and simply you are looking at it from different angle and the object will remain the same. There are cases, and this is the most general state of affairs, there are cases where depending on how you set up your experiment and depending how you set up your point of view, you might get a whole different object than in another experiment. And this is how in quantum mechanics, depending on how you take irreversible steps to make an experiment where, for instance, you are going to manifest a wave, you would have a wave as a result. And if you do, made another uh, experiment by shutting down one of the two holes of, in the famous Young experiment, if you do that, it's a completely different context, completely different experiment. And therefore, you get a completely different object. You, can, you get statistics which are uh, produced by particle-like uh, phenomena rather than wave interferences. So this is the paradox of quantum mechanics. But if you take a step back and think philosophically at what's happening with knowledge and thinking, etc., you get to the idea that you are simply dealing with a theory of probability that is more general than probability of measure theory and Kolmogorov. You are dealing with a meta uh, probabilistic theory, really, which has its formalism. So it's perfectly formalized, and it is the formalism that you get with the wave function. And if, if you apply the formalism, and it doesn't have necessarily to only apply to elementary particles, you can get situations even in the macro world where you make it so that the object depends on the context or, or the experiment, and you get exactly the same terms uh, that are so paradoxically looking in quantum mechanics, meaning the additional terms that you get from what we call the interference of probability, and you get statistics uh, that violate uh, the Bell inequalities and therefore do not um, follow the classical statistics that you expect from Kolmogorov. So meaning to say that it's deeply philosophical because it has nothing really to do with particle physics, except that particle physics is the, uh, the, the best known case of application. It really has to do with how general are we putting the levels of knowledge and the level at which we are going to analyze phenomena? So because I was trained in this philosophy of quantum mechanics and because I witnessed and was witnessing all the time phenomena in the exchange and in the stock market, which from day one struck me as being 
outside of the, the strict probabilistic framework. This is what got me into thinking at what could be the larger uh, framework in which to understand uh, the uh, financial market. And by financial market, I mean the, the market of derivatives. It's a well-posed problem, even though I don't have a, a formal solution to that. It's a well-posed problem because uh, the pricing of derivatives in orthodox the theory is exactly based on Kolmogorov. I mean, it's based on, you know, measure theory, and uh, you, you have to have a probability space. All the papers in the derivative pricing do start with the, let's assume you have a probability space with the filtration and everything. So it respects absolutely uh, the uh, formalism of Kolmogorov. And I read in, in one book, uh, which um, uh, is still on my mind today uh, by Krenikov. It's called Probability and Randomness, Quantum versus Classical. A statement, uh, because I, I, I read this book four years ago, which really animated my thinking recently, where he says that precisely the formalism by Kolmogorov of measure theory is still alive today and kicking because of mathematical finance. So mm -hmm. ma mathematical finance is probably the area where measure theory and so the, so the theory of stochastic processes is most advanced and the, uh, they have a lot of research going there, which has consecrated the, this whole um, formalism uh, by, by Kolmogorov of measure theory. So because derivative pricing is based on that, and because I know that in the derivatives market, there is something larger and beyond that, this is what triggered my, my philosophical thinking, meaning what is the philosophical setting or matrix or background where we can try to understand the derivative market, which is not a probability uh, device. And why is it not a probability device? It's because of recalibration. That's as simple as that. It's because any model that you have uh, to price derivatives the next day, you're going to break it by and change the parameter because you recalibrate to new prices of derivatives that are not uh, in accordance with what your model wanted the day before. It's very well known in quantitative finance. I mean, uh, Rebonato in his book, um, uh, Volatility and Correlation, the, the Hedger and the Fox, expressed it very well by saying, out of model hedging and recalibration of the derivative pricing model are the biggest challenges. And this is what is done in practice every day, but yet they pose the biggest challenge to the theory of derivative pricing. So how do we make sense of that in what larger uh, philosophical understanding than strictly uh, probability how do we make sense of recalibration and of out-of-model hedging, or in other words, of the practice of trading derivatives, uh, is the uh, thing that is driving me. And, I mean, you can very well lay the problem there and say, okay, fine, this is practice, so there's no theory, so what's the point of, of commenting anything? Everybody knows that we are going to use probability, and everybody knows that the probability doesn't work. What's, so what's the point of philosophizing? I answer that you have, nevertheless, to provide a discourse if not to find the next uh, formalism, at least to found the technology itself. Because later, after being a market maker for 10 years, I had a three-year uh, intermission where I studied philosophy and didn't do anything else. But then after that, I created this company and we are developing software, therefore derivative pricing technology to address the derivatives market. And you, you wonder what is the book or what is the theory that is going to at least explain the technology, explain what you are doing. Even though it won't be formal theory, we have to write a book that explains the technology and the technology exceeds probability because of recalibration and uh, out-of-model hedging. So I believe that Bergomi, in his own way, has, has written such a book. His book, Stochastic Volatility Modeling, is not a book of theoretical finance, 
And I read in forums that people find it very difficult to understand because people who expect, you know, uh, classical books in terms, you know, of, of formalism uh, are completely lost in it because it's a book of technology. It's a book that between the lines is telling you that probability has to be exceeded. And I do say between the lines because he's very, uh, he doesn't apparently like philosophy. So he just in one sentence, sometimes he, he expresses the fact that no probability is not the matter. So you, and you wonder what, what is the matter then? And he doesn't expand on it. But I do, and the, the speech that I, I give at the CQF is uh, precisely um, uh, going to at last do philosophy of science in, in, in derivative pricing uh, theory that we have. This is, I think, what our field is lacking, is the philosophy of science in the same way that the philosophy of science in quantum mechanics helps us understand what the formalism of quantum mechanics is saying and in what way it exceeds uh, uh, the, the, the orthodoxy and it exceeds the received views. So we are lacking a philosophy of science in, in, uh, in our business of derivative pricing. I believe that Bergomi's book, which is again a book of practice and technology, has got to be completed by a philosophical reading and uh, commentary. And this is, I hope, what I do uh, in the lecture uh, at CQF, especially when you oppose it to uh, views that uh, appear to, to, that, that fall on, on our heads from other, uh, from the sky uh, almost, of people, for instance, uh, who claim uh, that they ha we have found uh, God's model, meaning the true model, which is the rough volatility model, for instance. How could it be that somebody is writing a book about derivative practice uh, and derivative software as it's used by bank every day and arguing, I mean Bergomi, that you shouldn't really trust the, the probability model that we are using, uh, that are only here to afford the uh, computational procedure, but actually the reality is something that surpasses probability. How do you um, make this uh, harmonize with somebody who's telling you, I have done some research, I know that the stochastic process of volatility is fractional Brownian motion, and therefore uh, the, the, the truth about uh, uh, the underlying equity process and the truth about the option prices is the rough volatility model. So one is saying there is no such a thing as underlying stochastic process because probability doesn't exist. And the other is saying, I know the truth. So to reconcile the two and to finally try to understand what the hell we are doing in this business, you need to do a philosophy, which is a criticism of theory. And this is what is lacking. And this is what I, uh, I'm trying to do. That was a long answer. That was a long answer, <laughs> but it was a good one. We've got so much to unpack from there. I want to go back to quantum mechanics. I want to ask you that concept of object. You encountered quantum mechanics at L'Ecole Polytechnique. Yes. And my original question was, what was your initial disposition? The idea of going into a form of categorical thinking. Did that appeal to you even at that point? Where did that initial tendency come from? Of course, my first encounter was, you know, was mind-liberating um, uh, readings was when I was, I think, 12 or 13 years old when I read and, and I understood relativity theory. So uh, my, my father gave me a book uh, when I was 13, it was uh, 1979, so yes, I was 13 years old, and it was the, uh, the um, uh, 100th, uh, 100th anniversary of Einstein. Uh, so that book was, was published then. And it's there that I, I read uh, uh, about his uh, relativity theory, 
And of course, uh, what I immediately um, uh, struck my mind is how Einstein, um, uh, after himself having studied Ernest Mack, uh, who wrote uh, a famous book in the 19th century called The Science of Mechanics. So the whole idea of the economy of thought. So the economy of thought is try not to make our mind a prisoner of, of, you know, of prejudice and try to, even if um, we are going to end up postulating amazing things, uh, like, you know, like uh, the speed of light is the same in, in all reference, uh, the, despite the intuitive idea of uh, composition of, 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 you know, of speeds and addition of speeds. So if that is the, what the economy of thought tells me to do in order to get it simpler, then I shouldn't uh, refrain and I, I should do it. So when I understood that these kinds of ideas, which are revolutionary in the way of, you know, of, of uh, why don't we turn the problem upside down? Why, why don't we think the unthinkable? This really struck me at that early age as being the thing that I found most exciting. And of course, you know that quantum mechanics, the way Heisenberg, you know, uh, in one night uh, figured out uh, figured out the whole matrix interpretation of quantum mechanics, etc., is thinking like that. It is thinking, why don't I? Because I know that putting a matrix there is going to solve my problem. And later, I try to find what is the amazing thing that the matrix would imply to my entrenched and and uh, views and to my prejudices. So that was what I think earlier, even than Ecole technique and, and uh, learning quantum mechanics, uh, what really was on my mind and put me in the predisposition, if you will, to, to like uh, quantum mechanics and to, to, to like these kinds of things. Certainly. Well, that makes complete sense. When I first became acquainted with quant finance, the first thing that allowed me to grasp what was going on was constant mention of the analogy to physics. And then soon after that, when I was introduced to your work, I, I realized that there's a great opportunity for deeper thought here. I've been honored to be along that journey over the last 20 years and see how your thought has developed. I, I can't say obviously, as you know, that I've been able to grasp everything. But nevertheless, I've always believed in the importance of having these discussions or even just taking a moment to think about the moment before you trade, you know, what's going on. So I'm going to play word association with you. And I'm going to start with a word and I'm going to say what I think it means to me. And you're going to tell me what you think it means. Okay, so market. Market for me is, is a technology in, in the sense that it extends our ability as an individual and extends that far beyond what we're capable of doing as an individual actor. And that's as far as it goes for me. Um, market is a technology for achieving certain things. So market for Eliash, what does that word connote? Poem, a poem like in Malarmé, where he says that a throw of the dice will never um, abolish a chance, uh, because the market to me is the higher uh, technology, let's call it that, than probability, uh, and the market is uh, the meta-probabilistic um, uh, plane on which multiple, if you will, uh, stochastic processes are run almost together, because you are going to recalibrate. Uh, therefore, the analogy that I have uh, in my books taken for that superior uh, technology which goes forward and not backward because in all probabilistic models we always go backward in the computation whereas the actual the actual uh, history and time is going forward so 
the process of the market, which is to me superior to the uh, process of probability, of, even from the blanks one, I started calling it a process of writing, because you do say that man writes history, uh, literally, the word is writing history. So, uh, and the analogy that I want is to say that the market writes the future, not in the sense that the future is written, meaning you know what it is in advance. No, on the contrary, in the sense that you don't know what the future is, even more severe than probability. Uh, so in a sense that even any probability model, you are going to change. But writing, because of the idea of going forward, and because of the idea, uh, which is uh, apparent explicitly almost in the poem by Mallarmé, where he says, I don't know if you're familiar with this poem, is that it's a poem which doesn't follow any schema, any traditional schema of a poem where you have, you know, a meter uh, that rules uh, the verse, etc. On the contrary, the poem is laid out in space rather than in a temporal succession. So if you have to open the page and there are a lot of blanks between the, the, the words uh, and there is one sentence that runs from the start to the finish of the poem and inside the sentence like a fractal curve there are other verses that come into it. So the whole structure of the poem is happens more in space than in a temporal succession. And it's not that you have one meter and one clock uh, that is telling you what the meter is, but several clocks running in parallel. And that's why it's not one throw of the dice. So it's not one, something that you throw the dice once and it's one probability uh, outcome that you have, but all dice thrown at the, at the same time. And not one of them falls on the ground and gives you the end result. That was his real ambition of writing this superior poem in terms of, of being superior to any chance, any uh, throw of a dice that an ordinary poet would do by throwing only the dice once and writing one poem, writing the superior poem. So for me, this is what the market is. Of course, it is done by human beings. But I, I don't like pretty much the idea of saying that the reason why markets are complex or are superior to physical systems is because of the existence of human beings and psychology and the existence of the crowd. I don't like that interpretation at all, even though it makes sense for people who want to, to do anthropology of markets or to do sociology of finance or to do behavioral finance. Of course, these are quite respectable fields. Uh, to me, it's ontology. So independent of the human being or the human mind, etc., it's the state of things and the state of history by itself that necessitates the existence of a record for the future that exceeds the probability. That's all. And uh, we have the market, but we also have history. I mean, history, uh, the events as they happen, except that it's far too complex and far larger than the market. But the market, because it's a historical process and not the probability process, is one of the processes. And I mean by that, that it's creative, of course. Of course, the key uh, word here is create, creativeness and creation. So, of course, you have to create a new context. You have to create new derivatives that you couldn't at all price in the previous context. So, that, that, so that, of course, there is like a creation all the time. And history is creative because uh, the, the markets will behave in completely unexpected ways to new events and new categories of events as they emerge. So it's content creation. And there is no way you can embed that in any previous uh, state of mind or frame of mind or worldview or whatnot. So of course we are talking about the creative process, but I like to link it more with 
a kind of uh, ontological uh, reflection about time with a capital T and the events uh, with capital E and not just about the human mind or the human behavior. Next word is price. So price is just something that I feel that arises out of supply and demand in whatever points we happen to be keeping in our accounts. So what does price mean to Eli Ash? Price, it means exactly continuing with, with the, my first the, the expansion about the market, is value is something that I oppose to value. Value is what you get out of your valuation algorithm, which are, you have to use because you have to, you have, to have an arbitrage-free formula with which to, as a market maker, we are going to value derivatives. So values is what your valuation function outputs. And you, in mathematics, you say that you value a function. Mathematical functions are always valued. Uh, so that's value. But price is the thing that the value is going to become when it's going to contradict itself and get you outside the previous frame. So price is what the value that you have produced as a market maker is going to become immediately as it, as it touches the market. It's not that it has necessarily to move, as, even, even statically, even before, before you open your mouth. As soon as, as a market maker, you quote the results of your valuation, it becomes a price because you're offering to the market. And therefore, it's potentially going to become itself a calibration input to the next instance of the model. Price to me is understanding price in opposition to value. And this is why, for instance, in my reading of Bergomi in the lecture, I insist very much on the fact that he calls his pricing function a pricing function and not a valuation function. And he notes it by capital P and not capital V, like we have in the usual valuation papers. Why a pricing function? Because precisely... Uh, it is, of course, for all practical purposes, uh, underlain by a stochastic process and a, a, an algorithm of valuation algorithm. However, it is as a pricing function, it's superior because it's going to change in ways which are out of model in the next instance. He called it a pricing function because he is not evaluating things a priori uh, from like a theory, but he only get he's only getting his pricing function by doing ex-post accounting uh, equations and controlling of the P&L. So uh, whenever you get finance constructed the way we want to be constructed, it may mean, meaning by putting price first, you invert the causality. So value emerges out of the ex-ante uh, attitude where you have probability and you compute expected value and expectations and you get valuation. Whereas inverting the causality, uh, as Bergomi says you should do, is the market exists, you get from the market prices, and you do your analysis always exposed by, by writing the expression of the PNL, and you what pricing equation no longer model, what pricing equation or pricing rule you are going to get is by making sure that the PNL that you have written exposed is under control. And this you have to use a pricing function, not a valuation function, because you are working with market prices exposed, exposed anything that has happened in the mind of the market in order to fit the new prices, etc. Next word. Now, matter to me is just stuff. So matter is something that really came to the fore in your philosophy with the medium of contingency. A matter, if you read inside, is actually, the, the, I think the way I use this is in contrast to metaphysics. Yes. Is that I, I want, it's no longer speculation. So it's not that I'm, we are talking, you know, just uh, um, uh, in thin air and things. I want to define a new category of matter, which I apply to the uh, financial market. 
And I call it a matter really to, to illustrate the fact that it is material and that it resists because a matter is something that you get out of negations in a way. Matter is the thing that pushes the boundaries of your thought. Uh, matter is the thing that thought encounters and uh, uh, there is a shock that happens between matter and thinking and therefore there is something that opens up which might have been in complete contradiction with whatever uh, schema of mind you had before. So matter is what a always trials uh, thought. Uh, and because I was facing, trying to understand how I can get to the meta-probabilistic uh, frame of mind in order to understand uh, what the market is, because the, the thinking is struggling here with something that thought has to push. push. That's, that's why I use this word matter. And I also want to define... There is also in matter a positive uh, orientation because uh, void is the lack of something and matter is something positive. So also I used, I like the word matter because instead of start, uh, continuing to criticize uh, probability by saying, well, uh, the market is the failure of probability, the event with capital E as in contingency is the failure of any probabilistic thinking, etc. So instead of always doing this negative criticism by saying, no probability applies, etc. Try in your mind to make a gestalt switch, if you think, and try to reread this negative thing into a positive one and reread the lack, the void of probability or the void of thing. Try to then say, I want to define that positively as the matter of the market. So the matter of the market becomes the positive thinking of what previously you had thought was only failure and only, um, you know, the collapse uh, of the previous structures of mind that you have. So yes. positively, I want to say that there is a material surface of prices on which I write the prices of derivatives. And by writing, as I said earlier, it's a process that is superior to just, you know, backwardation and computation of values. So it's a surface, a material surface of which we write prices as we go forward and the prices as opposed to values that we are going to write um, are really... Uh, going to push the logic forward and backward as in probability. So to me, matter, price, and writing uh, go hand in hand because writing is actually engraving something on matter and matter yes. of the market, which I have now defined as the void of probability now turned positive in the switch of mind. And going forward rather than constantly looking backwards. Yeah, rather than constantly doing the backward narrative by saying, well, you know, uh, uh, no, I was completely wrong. I have now to make volatility stochastic, no, that, which is the backward narrative. Now build that into something which is constantly uh, going forward. The image that I have is like a, um, a tunnel boring, one of those massive tunnel boring machines, you know. It's what's occurring at the face. The market is what is at it's the, the meeting point between the bore and the rock face. It's all about the future rather than where the tunnel, <laughs> where the tunnel has come from. Final word, contingency. To me, something that just depends on something else. Contingency. You're right. That's one meaning of contingency, meaning it depends. It's contingent upon. So contingent claim because the payoff is contingent about the underlying being in such a state or not. So that's the one contingency. But contingency is also the contrary to necessary. 
So what is contingent is what is not necessary. So a contingent uh, in another philosophical uh, understanding is what could be A, what could be B, could be C, or not could could not be at all. So something is contingent where it could be, you know, there is no necessity of its being or not being or, or being um, whatever it is. Of course, this is then linked to chance, of course, because uh, if you're saying that something can be anything whatsoever, even though it may remain the same without ever changing. So that that's also could be a contingent state of affairs that something hasn't changed and will never change, but contingently so. <laughs> so, so you see here, even though it looks as if it's a it's a an eternal state and a necessary state that is not going to move like the laws of nature say, but nothing tells me that time with a capital T is not to, uh, at some point, instantiate a, 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 an event that even the laws of nature um, uh, uh, will change. And in that, this is here, I'm more or less referring to Quentin Meillassou, who is a French philosopher who has written what has now become a very famous worldwide known books, a book called uh, After Finitude. And the subtitle is The Necessity of, of Contingency. So it's here that he really expands this view. And I read his book while I was writing The Blank Swan. And to me, it was an illumination. So that category of contingency, which that anything can happen, is the one that one of the interpretations of it is to say this is what surpasses probability. So uh, you, you can have a framework of probability was where you have assigned the algebra of events and you are doing your, your usual business. And suddenly, because of contingency, uh, something which happened outside probability, a contingent event is going to make you recalibrate the whole picture and to change the whole point of view. So in this sense, also contingency to me is what is superior uh, to probability. So it is chance with a capital C, which is superior uh, to the throw of the dice, to a single throw of the dice. That's why in Malarmé, throw of the dice will never abolish chance in, in, the, in the sense of the contingency, the absolute contingency of everything. There is a relative interpretation of contingency, as you said, contingent on something else, meaning depends on something else, and an absolute reading of contingency where anything can happen and a thing can be what it is or not be at all, etc. And your catching your flight is contingent on us. So, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. For our listeners, do make sure that you tune in to Ellie's CQF Institute talk neither God nor machine, man's model, available directly as this podcast comes out for you to watch on video. Thank you so much. Have a safe flight. And uh, I look forward to the next time we have an opportunity to speak. Thank you for listening to QuantSpeak. Don't forget to subscribe and do sign up to the CQF Institute for more insights into quant finance.